Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess. Or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, Sammy Tamimi and Tara Wigley, co-authors of Palestine, take us through a culinary tour of Palestine. They talk about the recipes, the people, and what it's like working with Yotam Otolenghi. I started my journey into the world of Otolenghi 10 years ago, and I'm a complete clone. I sort of, I feel disloyal if I do anything other than eat, cook, or think Otolenghi. <laughs> Well, it sounds like the way you talk about it, like it sounds like a cult. It is a cult. It's a church of tahini and shatta and lemons and olive oil, and uh, no one ever leaves. <laughs> we kind of adopt people, and they just stay cult. with us. <laughs> also coming up, we make seared pork tenderloin with smoked paprika, and Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett explore hidden food meanings behind non-food words. But first, it's my interview with food writer and top chef judge Gail Simmons. Gail, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here. You know, when we 
read people's autobiographies or do research for the show, there's always one little thing that you pick up that just you know, sort of really you just go, wow. Um, your mother taught cooking classes. In this case, it was for husbands. Mm -hmm. And your father dressed up as a French maid to serve the food. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, okay, that's one of those little memories from childhood you'll never forget, right? It really is. And it's really funny that you picked up on it because I've probably done 10,000 interviews since that book came out in 2012. And you're the first person to ask about it. Um, it is the funniest memory, and I have pictures in the book from that cooking class. My mother was an amazing cook, and she was really ahead of her time. She was one of the few moms doing tons of from-scratch but simple home cooking at a time when everyone else was discovering the microwave. And so she taught a lot of the women in our neighborhood, the moms, how to cook, sort of weeknight food for your families, or she would do a Chinese cooking class or an Italian cooking class. But once a year, she did a series of cooking classes for the husbands. And that was like a big deal, I remember it being. It was like very um, risque at the time. You know, it was like it was okay to cook and be a man. And the end of their classes, all of the men would cook a big dinner for their wives and everyone would come to my house. And <laughs> this one year to go with the theme, I guess, my father dressed up as a French maid and served everyone. He was the server. But I mean, he was in like heels and fishnet stockings and a French maid outfit. Well, that it was, it was pre-internet and he probably didn't realize there was a photograph knocking around. No, he does now. He I does mean, now. He, knows, he sure does now. Um, so you also uh, worked for Jeffrey Steingarten of Vogue, the man who ate everything. Talk to me a little bit about his, his, uh, following a subject to its illogical conclusion, which I think is a pretty good description of Jeffrey Steingarten. Jeffrey wrote for Vogue a regular column for 30-plus years, and he really specialized in a single subject every month where he would, you know, his, his philosophy was do the most exhaustive research you could do by any means necessary at a time when he had the magazine budget to do that. And it, that right. meant that if it, if the topic was peaches, he could get peaches flown in from all over the country, all over the world, and determine which peach is <laughs> the best possible peach in the world. Or it could mean learning about Northern Thai curry pastes and flying to Thailand for a month and researching them and then coming back and hunting down the most ideal mortar and pestle. Um, the adventures I went on with Jeffrey were outrageous. So we're going to move on now to television, to Top Chef, of course. So for people who are not real aficionados of the show, just explain yeah. how, what is a cooking challenge? How does it fundamentally work? Sure. Well, on our show, Top Chef, there's two challenges every episode. The first challenge is a quick challenge. We call them quick fires. And the purpose of it is usually to highlight a very singular skill or a very singular type of cuisine or flavor combination or something that's very focused. And they usually have a very short time to do it in, 30 minutes to 60 minutes. And it's about thinking on your feet, which is a very difficult thing to do when you are in an unfamiliar kitchen. In the second half of the show is the elimination challenge every episode. And that challenge is usually a much bigger challenge. It usually plays out over the course of two, sometimes three days. Um, you know, cook a Kentucky Derby party for 200 VIPs using all local <laughs> Kentucky ingredients, for example. 
That that sounds like the kind of thing I'd wake up in three in the morning and just absolute cold sweat. We joke, but I really believe it's true that because our chefs are cooking like that, they forever will sleep with one eye open because they're constantly waiting for us to drop the next stressful bomb on them, so to speak. You, you've written about the different types of losers, by that is people who, who lost on Top Chef, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was pretty interesting. You had four categories, <laughs> and you started with the towering ego. So maybe you could just take us through some of those categories. Well, you know, you see patterns after so many years working on the show, and there's a lot of different kinds of winners too, but I was struck when I wrote about them that everyone sort of, you know, well, first of all, going on television in the first place takes ego. Um, Being a chef takes ego, but there's always the few who, when their time comes to go, you know, that towering ego is always the one who, no matter what you say, no matter the pieces that they aren't aware of, no matter how good the other person's dish was, we made a mistake by eliminating them and we just don't understand their food. The, the, the next category was the confessors, I, which I thought was an unusual and sort of interesting concept. <laughs> P- people who are just immediately, you know, I did this wrong, I did that wrong, right? Yes. And that happens all the time, whether they actually lose or not. Sometimes it's when they win. Sometimes it's when they're in the middle. But when we're interrogating them about their dish, they immediately give up all of the flaws themselves. We barely have to say anything. And they just, it just pours out of them, all the mistakes they made. You know, so it gives us more ammunition against them or sometimes for them. And so we always try to explain to them, you don't have to tell us. We're only judging on what was in front of us. Okay, so I'm going to write you a check for... $5 $5 million and say, Gail, great. wouldn't that be great? <laughs> that's all, that's, that's all yeah. I want to say. <laughs> and, but I want you to invent a new cooking show that has a contestant aspect to it. W- what is it that's hmm. not been done that you think would be a really great show? The million dollar question. A $5 well, million, dollar $5 million question, yes. for that. Um, you know, Tom Calico used to say to me, and I always use this, that people go to a restaurant for the food, but they go back for the service and for the place. And so at the end of the day, that's what you want. You want return customers. So I feel like there could be a show really about that level of competition, mm. about the bigger experience of restaurants and what that magic fairy dust is that makes a restaurant great. You could sell that fairy dust for a lot of money. Uh, you know, if only I had knew the magic potion to create it. If we only knew. Gail Simmons, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. A real pleasure. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That was Gail Simmons, culinary expert, food writer, and top chef judge. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moulton and I will be answering your culinary questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So, Chris, now that I imagine you're spending quite a bit more time at home, have you been experimenting with new recipes? Yeah, actually, I've been, I spent three weeks trying to convert focaccia recipe into a pizza recipe. Uh, And I finally nailed it about three days ago. You know, focaccia's got a nice crispy bottom, a crispy top, and sort of airy inside. So I had to figure out how to turn that into a sort of a thinner, more crunchy pizza. But I finally did, and what I love is that you don't have to stretch the dough. It's so wet, 
you just put it in a pizza pan, it kind of stretches itself. So um, I made a really good pizza, and I don't have to roll it out. So time oh, well spent. Oh, jeez, Eureka, I love it. Well, that's good. let's take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Wellfleet, Massachusetts. Ooh, lovely. How can we help you today? I've been doing more sheet baking recently, and um, I've always been a fan of parchment paper for the easy cleanup. And I started to feel like that the roasting of vegetables was more uniform and that there was also less oil on the vegetables at the end. I was wondering whether the parchment paper had some effect on that other than just making the pan easier to clean afterwards. Well, it's somewhat of an insulation. Obviously, it keeps it from sticking. I believe you don't get quite the same caramelization as you do when you have it on the naked sheet pan. But I do agree that it just cooks more evenly. You get more even browning. As for the less oil, that is interesting to me because where does it go? Yeah, well, I was thinking that, well, this is just looking at, you know, <laughs> there's, it's not science, but looking at the pan when I take it out of the oven, I find that it's beating a little bit away from the pieces of vegetable. Well, that's interesting. I guess that's also back to sort of the non-sticktivity of the parchment that it just repels it somewhat. That's interesting. I don't know. Chris, what do you think? You're right. The parchment paper is just an insulator, which means less heat will be conducted from the metal pan to the food, which will give you a more consistent result. But you don't get, if you like little charred bits, you know, really dark bits. We, we do sweet potato, yams all the time, carrots. I kind of like the little bits that stick to the pan because you get a range of different flavors from bitter to charred to sweet. Your comment about beading is interesting because I've noticed that too because sometimes I'll throw parchment paper down. And I have seen that. My guess is it just beads up because of the parchment paper. It's a very smooth surface. And if it wasn't there, it would just end up on the baking sheet. I don't think the vegetables themselves end up with less oil on them is my guess. It's just that you notice it more against a white piece of parchment than you would on a charred, you know, fond, strewn piece of metal. But for consistency, right. I mean, it'll give you more consistent results if that's what you want, but that would be, you know, a personal choice, I think. As opposed to the charred bits and the non-charred bits, yeah. Yeah, I'd like it when you have to scrape the vegetables off the bottom of the, <laughs> of the baking sheet. Just a little bit, you know, because it it's more interesting. But, you know, it depends. It's just what you like. Right. The first time I noticed it was when I was roasting cauliflower and where I sort of like it to be a little bit more even, although I was still getting a little bit of darker brown on the top. But Yeah, and there's also, I don't know, I, I've used sort of natural parchment paper that's brown, and there's also that sort of non-stick parchment paper that's really slick. Sometimes I use one, sometimes I use the other. That might make a difference as well. The slick stuff probably insulates more. It's thicker and seems like it would transmit heat less well. But yeah, whatever you want to do is fine. I mean, you're right. The cleanup is easier. There's nothing the worse than is, half bacon yeah. sheep on, you know, three pounds of roasted sweet potatoes. Right. Yeah, that's called a big soak overnight, I'd say. That's <laughs> hoping you don't get up early in the morning to have right. to clean it. Right? It's not your turn, right? It's anyway. not your turn. All right. Well, Jennifer, thanks for calling. Yeah, thanks for calling. You're welcome. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Take care. You Bye-bye. too. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Pam from Dubuque, Iowa. And how can we help you today? Well, I am hoping that you can help me make Thai tea at home. I love Thai tea. I really can't have a lot of caffeine. And 
I have found mixes online, but they're either kind of gross because they've got all this food coloring in them, and none of them are decaf. So, you know, I mean, it's got a really unique flavor that I can't figure out. Well, cardamom clearly is one of the ingredients. Star anise or anise pods would be probably there. Cloves, anise, and cardamom, I think, are the three things that they would use in that mix. You could fool around with the combinations, but Sarah, that's what I would think, isn't it? There could be many, many spices in there, but I would definitely agree with the um, cardamom and the star anise and perhaps the cloves, but I've also seen cinnamon. I've also seen tamarind powder, not that that's easy to find. I saw that somewhere and I wondered, I have tamarind paste in my fridge. Mm. Yeah, you could use that. I don't see why not. Tamarind's one of the most wonderful things in the world. It's really great. For those people who don't know, it's very sort of citrusy and intense. It just seems like Thai tea that you get in a restaurant, but, you know, again, it's got a lot of caffeine in it. It seems like it has this smoky flavor. The smokiness is coming from the tea, right? It's a gunpowder or whatever they're going to use. That's where the smoke comes from, I would think. I just don't want this to taste like chai, which, you know, I make at home all the time. Yeah, it's going to be similar to chai probably, but there is no recipe for chai, right? Chai is just tea, so every recipe is different. But I think the cardamom and the star anise probably will be the thing that sets this apart. Star anise in particular. I've also seen orange blossom water. Oh. Maybe the tamarind and the orange blossom water would make a difference. And of course, we haven't mentioned the sweetened condensed milk and or the um, evaporated milk, and then you put it all over crushed ice. Yes. Yeah. By the way, on a side note, I don't know how much tamarind paste you have sitting around, but if you soften some butter and use maybe four tablespoons of butter to one tablespoon of tamarind paste and mix that up and use that as a tamarind butter, I actually make quick flatbreads in a skillet sometimes for (laughs) when I used to have people over for dinner. And I just brush them with this tamarind butter. And it may be the best thing I've ever eaten in my life. So if you have extra tamarind sitting around, make a tamarind butter. It's just phenomenal. You could put it on almost anything. Yeah. Wow. Yum. All right. It sounds really good. Well, I will try this. You know, I've never put star anise into chai, so maybe that is... That might be it. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm going to try it. Okay. But please report back and let us know how it goes. What worked for you? All right. I will. Thanks, Thanks Pamela. For Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to take your calls. Give us a ring at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Ilana. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Where are you calling from? San Diego, California. And how can we help you today? We took a trip, a family trip to Paris two summers ago and stayed in the first arrondissement. On our way to the metro from our hotel, we happened to walk past a boulangerie. We saw something there called Ficelle au Chocolat, and it was the best thing we ate in Paris. And I've tried different Ficelle recipes, but it just doesn't come close. I've never heard of Ficelle au Chocolat, so this is a new one. First of all, let's just say a Ficelle is a thin baguette. 
and a baguette is a very lean dough. How did the chocolate appear? It was a crusty, sweet baguette, lighter than a regular baguette and sweeter. And it was twisted so that the chocolate chips were running throughout it. There was a definite twist to the bread. Chocolate burns if the temperature is high, you know, if it's just naked. And it sounds like this chocolate was somewhat naked. It wasn't insulated by the actual dough. So I'm sort of baffled. Chris, I'm going to throw this one to you. I've spent some time at bakeries in Paris. I've never heard of Ficello Chocolat, but I would assume... If when they twisted it, if they put the chips or chunks or whatever they're using in those folds, you don't have a problem with burnt chocolate. So maybe it's just a a typical sweet yeast dough similar to a baguette, but they just, when they put the chocolate in, they just twist it. I mean, it sounds fairly straightforward. Sounds absolutely phenomenal. So Chris, don't you think this is something that the kitchen at Milk Street needs to take on and see what they can do to develop it? Sarah, uh, great idea. We'll make it every morning for my breakfast for three weeks in a row. (laughs) I like that idea. And then we'll send you a sample. Yes, please. We would be eternally grateful. 20 pounds heavier, but really happy. (laughs) Okay, challenge accepted. Sarah, we'll uh, we'll bake up some Ficello Chocolat. I love that plan. Send you some, and uh, we'll send you a recipe if we come up with one. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Take care. Thanks for calling. Yes. Thank you so much. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we hear from Sammy Tamimi and Tara Wigley, co-authors of Falestine, a cookbook. That and more in just a moment. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago... If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Sammy Tamimi and Tara Wigley, frequent collaborators of Yotam Odolenghi, also co-authors of the forthcoming Falestine, a cookbook. Sammy and Tara, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for Thank having you us. very much. So your book is called Falestine. Could you just define what that means? Uh, Palestine, it means Palestine. And uh, I wanted to kind of choose something that uh, 
relate to the place and to the people and to the food. For an English speaker, when they look at Palestine, they don't really kind of get it. But in the Arabic language, there's no P, so they use F or B. So when when you ask a Palestinian how do you pronounce Palestine, he would say Palestine. When I was in Galilee, there were some really classic dishes, maklube, moussakhan, sinia, maftul. But you're in your book, which I love, you are taking those ideas, but it's a very fresh, modern take on many of those dishes. Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting because when I started the project with Tara, I had in mind classic Palestinians uh, dishes. Uh, but after a while, in the process of making the, the, the book and trying the recipes, we decided that, uh, first of all, who's going to cook these dishes? Right. Do people have time to spend three days rolling vine leaves and <laughs> stuffing crochets? And right. also, there are quite a lot of cookbooks at the moment in the market where they kind of have almost, I mean, they are wonderful books in their own way, but they all have the same sets of uh, recipes. And this is what we wanted to kind of avoid and do something a little bit different, uh, fun, but also something that you can rustle up um, the approach to the cooking is quite easy. Yeah, we've really sort of tried to keep that fine line between these two things very much at the forefront. So for people who haven't got Palestinian cookbook, this will be the, we hope, the definitive book for them and will have the traditional Palestinian dishes. But as Sammy says, we also want this to be a book that people are using on a Monday night and cooking from. Um, so are you guys absolutely sick of shakshuk at this point? I mean, you just never want to see another recipe for it. Or I, I know you you know have variations on that theme, but is that just one of those things that is just enough already? Uh, no, I'm not sick because <laughs> uh, we still serve a very good shakshuk in our restaurants. Okay. And they are often, you know, the, the most popular dishes. I myself also do it at home, cook it from time to time because it's a very easy dish to do quickly. And you can feed two people up to 20 people and right. it doesn't, it's the same effort. And it's a really good fridge raid as well. Like we've got a green shakshuka in the book and I saw it's, that, a, yeah. it's a great way to just chuck in any herbs that are lying around. And also, you know, shakshuka is uh, the idea behind it is like you, whatever you have in the fridge, you can actually just add to it eggs and it's a lovely shakshuka. <laughs> if, if in doubt, add either feta, tahini or eggs. Yeah. So tahini's become this all-purpose ingredient, right? You can drizzle it on eggplant and roast it. You can mix it uh, with yogurt, put in a sauce or throw it in brownies or anything Ice else. Cream. Could you just talk about tahini and how you think about it and what you do with it? Maybe some ideas for using it that our listeners don't know about? I I mean, for me, very few meals don't have the addition of a sprinkle of tahini. I mean, I finish every day with just dipping a bit of chocolate in tahini. I have it on my toast. I have it on porridge. I have it on ice cream. I have it on every single roasted vegetable. As long as it's the proper tahini, it should be right. as runny and creamy and nutty as your sort of best peanut butter. Um, let's talk about eggplant. Eggplant's one of the things that's not cooked here in the States very much or cooked well yet you know, a charred, grilled eggplant. It's used all the time. J just talk to us about that because it's such a wonderful ingredient. I mean, this is an ingredient that uh, me and Tara and all the Otalengi family and all our kind of fans and people that follow the, the cookbooks love burnt aubergine, what we call or burnt eggplant. It's a very versatile, it's a 
people love it because it's um, it, it's quite meaty and uh, full of flavor and you can add it to almost every dish uh, in in Palestine. I mean, my, my poor kids, every morning they wake up and, and uh, the house is just filled with the smell of burnt aubergines because I have this sort of Pavlovian reflex when I wake up in the morning and put on the kettle and then I just chuck two aubergines on the on the open flame. I think eggplant has something addictive in it. I, I find it quite difficult to go through a day without eating an aubergine. Well, it's interesting that, yeah, people undercook it here in every recipe mm, I've which seen. Is sad. Like your recipe or whatever. I mean, you really cook it uh, you throw a little tahini on it and broil it and add herbs, and it, it's uh, wonderful. Um, spices, uh, what are six things people should have on hand? They probably don't. We use a lot of uh, Aleppo chili in, yeah. in the book. Um, ground cardamom is a beautiful spice. That's in, uh, we've got a fish spice mix that's paprika and ground cardamom and cumin and something else. Cinnamon. And cinnamon. Um, allspice, za'atar. Right. No kitchen shelf should be complete without zata. All all spice, cumin, turmeric. Why do cumin and coriander seem to be paired off so often? They have a natural affinity for each other. I I find um, cumin quite earthy and um, savory, and coriander is slightly kind of sweeter. And if mm-hmm. you're not uh, kind of cautious, they sometimes clash in flavor. But they they are both used kind of intensely in 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 the in this region, which is you know the Levant. So you also went to a camp in Bethlehem uh, and spent some time uh, with a cook who gives cooking lessons. Islam, she was she was brilliant. We've met her a few times, and and uh, she yeah she lives in Ida refugee camp, and she's got uh, lots of kids, two of whom are disabled, and she soon realised there was no provision for them in the camp or elsewhere and she started doing cookery classes with with some friends of hers to tourists and people coming through and just running this really thriving energetic business but yeah we met so many people doing such interesting cool things with food whether it's starting at the kind of the seed or the producers or the distributors or the makers right and when you speak to an olive oil producer or distributor or the guy who's sitting under the tree guarding the olive oil tree it's not just about the olive per se it's about land and identity so it's 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 hugely entwined and all the stories and recipes that go with it wait 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 so there's a guy guarding the olive oil tree you want to explain <laughs> yeah, that? Well, a... you, you can't just say I mean, that he, and move on what, he spends what more time with his tree than he does with his wife and, uh... oh. it's a it's a very old tree and um he's worried that uh one day he's going to leave it and the tree will disappear. So he just basically almost live underneath it, which is very touching story. And it's it's this kind of brilliant juxtaposition because he's this guy who's got this beard down to his waist and and um, living this sort of timeless, timeless days. But we walked away from him and the last thing he said to us was, make sure you post or look me up on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and this tree was, what, 700 years old or some amazing... It was very old, right? It's yeah, very old. Very old. I yeah. think maybe different people say different numbers, but yeah, we'll yeah. stick with very old. Yeah, I'm old, but the tree was older than me. <laughs> hey, Sammy, I'm older than you, man. I don't... <laughs> um, so let's talk about, Sammy, let's talk about you. You grew up in East Jerusalem. Correct. What was it like growing up there, and what was the food like? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a, a very foodie family, not in the sense of the modern foodie, but they were kind of almost obsessed with food. They would 
talk about food all the time and cook and eat and invite people. And we had an open house where people just come in and go. So my mom used to cook a lot. And she would always say, you never know who's going to come. You know, I don't want to be, end up with somebody coming in and I can't really feed. So uh, I got that from her as well. For years, I used to just cook like big meals for two people. And it's like, oh, what do you do <laughs> with the rest? Uh, and uh, from, a, from a, an early age, five or six years old, I used to basically sneak into the kitchen because I wanted to see what's happening and what's cooking and uh, it almost was like a secretive place where boys uh, and men don't kind of uh, have part in, in, in being in the kitchen. So it was all a kind of uh, women word. And I was shushed out so many times and two minutes later I'll be back in the kitchen kind of trying to see what's happening. Food was really kind of center of everything and food what kind of uh, almost guide me all my life, I, it's also what kept me connected to the to the place and to the family and the people. So, Tara, let's talk about your background. You started in London, moved to Ireland. Uh, how does that connect to sort of the Autolenghi family of cooking? I started uh, my journey into the world of Autolenghi ten years, just coming up for ten years ago, and um, and I'm a complete clone. I sort of I feel disloyal if I do anything other than eat, cook, or think Autolenghi. <laughs> Well, it sounds like the way you talk about our leg, it sounds like a cult, right? It's, it's it is almost, a cult. It's a yeah. cult. Yeah, we have, we have this, the church of tahini and shatta and lemons and olive oil, and uh, no one ever leaves. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of adopt people and they just stay cult. with us. <laughs> so if you start with a classic Palestinian culinary repertoire we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, and now you clearly have taken a few steps to adapt it to make it you know, useful for people. As you said, not everybody has three days to, to cook a dish. Um, d- eventually, do you end up so many steps away from the origin that it no longer ties back, I mean, in 20 or 30 years from now? Well, not not so much because we stepped, yeah, uh, a bit further, but uh, we stayed, what's the word? Re- they're recognizable. And uh, yeah. throughout the book, there's this narrative of, of stories and recipes and recipes and stories and the link between the two. And recipes are like stories. They get shared between people. And in the sharing, some things change and some things adapt, but the core of the story stays the same. And this is also a book that's going to make Sammy's sisters and family proud. They're going to see this book and, and see themselves and recognize themselves. It's, uh, it's very um, honest food. It's very connected to the land. It's very healthy. It's um, it's got quite a lot of colorful vegetables and fruit and uh, olive oil, garlic, chili, lots of dill, lots of herbs, lots of shatta, lots, uh, lots of tahini. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's got all the right elements to please you, to, to make you happy to, that you are kind of cooking and eating this type of food. Well, I just want to say I've gone through with my sticky notes and put about <laughs> 35 recipes on my absolutely essential list. That's Brilliant. wonderful. That's so good to hear. Uh, beautifully done, uh, great recipes. I just want to congratulate both of you, and thank you so much for being on Milk Street. It's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. That was Sammy, Tamimi, and Tara Wigley, co-authors of the forthcoming Phallistine, a cookbook. Time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, seared pork tenderloin with smoked paprika.
Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. So today we're cooking with my favorite spice. Really? I actually have a favorite. I had no idea. Smoked paprika, pimenton. It's one of those things that you just need a little bit of it and boom, you go from good to great, right? I mean, it's one of the things Americans don't use very much, but they should. They should. I think they confuse it with Hungarian paprika, which has not really much flavor to it. It's more of a coloring spice, I would say, than a flavorful spice. Spanish kind is smoked. It has a ton of flavor. The Spanish typically use it as a finishing sprinkle, so it's more of a raw application. And we found when we went to Spain that cooking it actually dulls its flavor, so you have to really treat it kind of gently. And sometimes people use it with old leftover bread and garlic. Like Jose Andres makes a soup out of it right. with a couple tablespoons. It's simple, easy, and you can take leftovers and turn them into great stuff. So we're not doing old bread. We're doing a tenderloin. We are. So we're taking a pork tenderloin, and we're actually going to cook it what is considered a la plancha, which is on a flat top griddle. We're going to use a skillet here, but what that really means is just cooking a piece of meat really hot and really fast. So we take the tenderloin and cut it in half and then butterfly it and pound it to about a quarter of an inch thick so that we can really sear it quick and fast. And when we put it in the pan, we're just seasoning it with salt at this point. I'm waiting for the pimenton. Is that coming? It's coming. So like I said, we learned that cooking it too much really dulls its flavor. So we cook the pork almost all the way through, and then we brush it with this really great paprika oil. So it's paprika with oil and oregano, and we brush that on right at the end, and then it's literally just kind of kissed in the pan and pulled off, and then we brush it again with a little bit more. So we're getting kind of a combination of cooking it, blooming it a little bit, in the pan with that raw application at the end. Did you say kissed? I did Are say you're becoming poetic? <laughs> Lynn, you're a poet. I didn't know that about you. So from start to finish, this is just a few minutes in a skillet, right? So fast, And yeah. just a handful of ingredients. Yeah, it's great. Sounds great. So seared pork tenderloin with smoked paprika or pimenton, a great way to use a spice that very few people do. Thank you. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for seared pork tenderloin with smoked paprika at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we discover the hidden food meanings behind non-food words such as seersucker. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, You'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Molt and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, this is Will from outside of Philadelphia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. How can we help you today? 
I had a question about cinnamon rolls. When I make them, normally I shape and cut and place them in the pan the day before and then refrigerate them overnight. And some of the recipes that I have say to thaw them at room temperature before baking them. But when I do this, there's a large amount of watery syrup that pools at the bottom of the pan. Why does that happen and what can I do to prevent that? So when you make them, you don't just put them in the fridge, you put them in the freezers. That's what you're saying. Well, I've done both. And both times I got, I mean, there's maybe a cup or two of the syrup that pulls to the bottom. It's so much, and I don't understand why it does that. It's white sugar you're using, correct? It's brown sugar. Okay. I think what's going on is that the sugar is just melting. How about par baking them just till they set up and then freezing them? or refrigerating them. And that way, I think the sugar will sort of be set and you won't get that pooling and then just finish them off the second half of the way the next day. Now I'm going to let Chris weigh in. I do have a question. So you pull it out of the freezer and you take it out. What does it look like the second you take it out? Do you see any liquid in the pan or this is after some time? Uh, There's a little bit of liquid in the pan, but it, it seems to increase as it sits. And... Like, I make them at room temperature with softened butter and put it in the fridge. Like, what is, you know, extracting moisture? Well, it's obviously the sugar. Sugar is hygroscopic, which means it attracts water. And the only thing I can think of is the humidity in the air when you take it out. It's drawing moisture from the air. It's coming from the freezer, which is very dry. And then it's going into an environment that's very wet and moist, relatively speaking. So my guess is it's sucking liquid from the air uh, because... That whole mixture is pretty dried out from being in the freezer. I don't know whether if you use white sugar, that would be better than using brown or a mix of white and brown, but I doubt it. I think it's it's just sucking moisture out of the air as it's sitting yeah. there warming up. I think that's what's going on. Yeah, I agree. I think it's just the sugar is the problem. But what do you think about par baking? I think that might be a nice solution. Maybe. Yeah, I like that a lot. My only other idea was the recipes I've been using, you put softened butter down first and then put a layer of brown sugar on top. But I was thinking some recipes, you make a paste of butter and sugar. So I was wondering maybe if that would affect, you know, if the sugar is bound up with something, maybe it wouldn't extract, pull as much water in. Um, So I might give that a try. Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, um, I know that when we've done it in our kitchen, we use softened butter on the dough and then put the sugar mixture on top, but maybe mixing the butter and the sugar might coat it with fat, which means it's probably not going to attract much water when it comes out of the freezer or the refrigerator. It's probably a good idea. Well, will you do us a favor and, and try it out and let us know how it goes? Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, and let us know because th- this has been a great question. Thanks, Will. Take care. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Emily from Marietta, Georgia. How can we help you? My husband and I got a pig from a friend who was starting a pastured pork farm, and I know it was well-raised, and I know it was finished on acorns, but the problem is that the meat is super gamey. It's really strongly flavored, at least to me, unpleasantly so. And many of the cuts have been, it feels like almost as much fat as meat. And I've got two and a half to three and a half pound 
brined ham hocks left, and I just don't know what to do with them. So I'm looking for advice. Um, when you say pastured pork, exactly what does that mean? They were out on a farm. So they're feeding them, you know, cornmeal, uh, usually to grate them up. Acorns would be fabulous. And it also sounds, since there's so much fat, they're getting a pretty rich diet. So my guess is it's not the pasture so much as it, these are maybe older pigs. Do you know how big they were when they were slaughtered? About 200 pounds. If they're older, the meat will tend to be gamier and also fatter. It sounds to me like you had a bigger pig that had a very rich diet. Are these smoked ham hocks or just brined ham hocks? Just brined. You know, ham hocks are great. Just the flavor, a pot of beans or a soup or a stew or something else. It's just use one hock and it's just a great base to turn. You can turn water into stock, essentially. But cooking beans would be my go-to use of a ham hock. Uh, Sarah? The one thing I was going to suggest, which is what I always suggest with anything that's gamey, soak them in milk. This is if you want to eat them more straight up than just as a flavoring, like Chris suggested. You know, just put them in a bag with some milk. Milk can really pull out bitter, gamey, unattractive, strong, strong flavors. So I'd give that a shot, you know, like overnight, 24 hours. Ham hocks have skin on them, so I don't I think... Know. You don't think Soaking them in milk is going to do anything at all. You could even score the skin a bit to try to get some more of the liquid in there. Yeah, but, you know, the hocks have some meat on them, not too much. I would, you know, we talk at Milk Street all the time about people cooking with water, not stock in most places in the world. Use water. You know, you cook them in a water for a couple hours. You're going to make a stock. You're going to have a little bit of meat left over when you're finished. You just take the meat off the bone, take the skin off. And then, as I said, that's the base for whatever you want to make, a soup, stew, beans. And I don't think the gaminess is going to be overwhelming since you have one hock and a bunch of water, two quarts or three quarts of water. How heavy or how big are these hocks? They sound pretty big. They're about two and a half to three and a half pounds. <sighs> Those are big. Wow. Yeah. That's a 300-pound pig. That's a big animal. So, okay. Well, that would be the best I can think of. Sarah, anything else? No, I, I'm still not going to give up on the milk if she could score the skin somewhat to get the milk in there. Maybe I'll do one with the milk and one as the base of the stock. Yes. And let us know, please. This is a head-to-head contest, so we need to Yeah. We need to definitely call you back. I'll try to be online. Okay, well, thank do you. Do your best. We appreciate that. Emily, thanks. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Good guys. talking to you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Adolph from New Orleans. I've eaten a lot of boiled seafood in Louisiana, but oversalted, too spicy, and overcooked shrimp is all too common. Here's my tip on how to change that. Put the seafood boil you like to use into the pot of water. You can even make your own by using salt and pickling and other spices. This gives you control of the salt and heat. Next, drop the shrimp in the water, let them brine in the mixture for about 30 minutes. Bring the pot to a boil, turn off the heat, let them steep until just done. Perfect boiled shrimp every time. If you'd like to share your own culinary tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett. They're co-hosts of Away With Words, the public radio show about language. Grant and Martha, what's on your mind this week? 
Well, this week we're thinking about words that have foods tucked inside of them. They're hidden inside hmm. of these words. Would you like to hear some? Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, give me an example. <laughs> okay, let me give you an example of one of my favorite words of all time: the English word seersucker. Like the fabric? Yeah, the fabric. Isn't that a glorious word just to say, seersucker? So the lightweight fabric that I might wear with a straw boater. Yeah, yeah, in the summertime, you know, to the derby or something like that. I just have to admit to our audience that I have a seersucker suit. You do? Yeah, I'm a guy who wears bow ties. So what, what else are you going to wear in the summer? Well, the next time you put on that seersucker suit, you can put it on happy in the knowledge that it actually comes from the names of two different foods. It goes all the way back to Persian words that literally mean milk and sugar. What? How cool is that? And I'll tell you why. It's a reference to those alternately smooth and puckered surfaces. You know, you have one line that is as smooth as milk right. and another one that's kind of rough and bumpy like sugar. Right. Over time, it was it was in East India, and it ended up in the English language. And what's also super cool is that the sucker in seersucker is related to uh, other words that descended from the Indo-European language. So you get azúcar in Spanish, meaning sugar. You also right. get sugar in English, and you get zucker in German, which is related to the name Zuckerberg, <laughs> which means sugar mountain. How uh, cool is that? So Facebook is connected to Searsucker? <laughs> you, you lost me here. So I, I get milk and sugar, mm -hmm. yeah. but how do you get to a Searsucker suit? Because that seems like a pretty uh, big leap. That is a really good question. Well, I think the fabric was originally made uh, in the places where people spoke Persian, and it found its way oh. into East India and, and Hindi, and we picked it up there. Oh, that's great. So the sucker part of seersucker yeah. is, sounds so much like the word sugar. Yeah. You can hear the similarities. Yes, yes. How Isn't that, that sweet? Yeah. <laughs> the seer doesn't sound anything like milk, so that didn't travel through the Indo-European languages into English. Right. But the sucker means. Right. It's cognate with the Sanskrit word for milk, but yeah, but yeah we don't we don't have a connection there. But, but I just I just love seeing those images huh. in seersucker. You know, I can't top that, but I have a hidden word for you. I have a word that yeah. has food hidden inside of it. Okay. This is the music form zydeco. Do you oh. know zydeco music? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the uh -huh. foot stomping, yeah. accordion squeezing. Yeah, yeah. fiddles yeah. and dancing. Louisiana, yeah. East Texas. Well, let the good times roll. Let the bon temps rouler. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so um, as far back as 1949, you can find zydeco mentioned in print and in, in newspapers and albums and stuff. And there was a song called Les Haricots Sont Pas Salés, which basically means the green beans ain't salted. <laughs> and it's a way of referring indirectly to the fact that times were tough and there wasn't any salt or salted fat to add to the beans, right? Mm. So you didn't have any meat. Your green beans were plain. And so it's a kind of a fun, rollicking tune. You can actually find C.J. Chenier and, um, playing it on YouTube. Oh, you can, really? Yeah, you can just listen to it. It's, it's a fun song. And anyway, that name of that song, Les Haricots Sont Pas Salés, corrupted sounds like Zarico mm -hmm. or Zydeco. And it no. follows all these corruptions that are very normal ways that words are condensed or contracted in the mouth 
to become the word Zydeco. So the green beans basically turns into the word Zydeco. How about How that? How great is that? <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> I, I can't wait to go out and listen to uh, My Green Beans Aren't Salted Band. <laughs> yeah, it's really. I, I think you need to translate really. it as My Green Beans Ain't Salty because it's really an earthy oh. song. It's really, it's hard times. You know, I, I thought etymology was, was a little dry. Yeah, <laughs> but I think the two of you have made it very clear it's anything but, right? You know, people are like, oh, you do a show about language. They're like, yeah, they're thinking like cobwebs and grammarians yeah. in the dark corner of the library right. and like corduroy jackets with patches on the elbows. <laughs> That's what they're thinking. Yeah, and the fact is that I, there, there are all these gorgeous, picturesque images. Yes, symposium. Symposium. That's the other one you have to talk about, Martha, Let's right? have a symposium. Lift our, lift our glasses. Let's lift our glasses. Yeah. The symposium is another of my favorite words because it goes back to Greek words that mean drinking together. You know, the sim is like like symphony, all these voices right. together. Right. And symposium, the posium in symposium is related to words like potion and potable. And, huh. you know, think about Plato's symposium. Those guys were all sitting around talking about philosophy while they were drinking. Deep in their cups. Yeah. Yeah. So when I speak at a symposium, I always like to mention that because it seems to put people at ease. Well, philosophy and drinking always went together. Oh, yeah, it got better as the evening went on, right? Yeah. You, you had yeah. more insights. You got more philosophical the more, <laughs> more you drink. So to get back to etymology, it sounds like etymology is salty. That, that should be your T-shirt for your show. Yeah. Salty stuff, you know. There's more there than I thought. Oh, it absolutely Yeah, is. it's got a little vinegar to it, too. <laughs> Great, Martha, next time I see you, let's have a symposium. Sounds All right. Sounds like a plan. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Some food origin stories do make sense. Apple of my eye refers to a time when the pupil of the eye was thought to be solid, and in fact, they called it the apple. A piece of cake referred to a dance contest where the contestants did the cakewalk, and the winning couple received, yes, a cake. But I don't believe that the Earl of Sandwich invented the sandwich. Nobody had thought of putting meat between two slices of bread before the 18th century. I think it's time to call Grant and Martha. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, please download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, take an online cooking course, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 